Uh, you'll notice that the bulletin is pretty blank. <laughs> no fill-ins. But you can make notes if you want. Um, my talk is called Jesus Christ, Culture, and Politics. At the beginning of his inaugural teaching in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had this to say to the thousands of ordinary people listening to him, many of whom he had healed of all kinds of diseases, cast demons out of people. And these were just ordinary people that had come from all over the region where Jesus lived and traveled and even beyond. And he says to these ordinary people, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So these ordinary, regular people who follow Jesus are supposed to be like salt, which was a preservative in the ancient world, and like light. With that in mind, let me tell you a story of two nations and their churches. As you may know, slavery has been ubiquitous among human society since the beginning of human society. And there's many types of slavery. The Bible talks about slavery in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometime in the 1500s, Europeans began to buy slaves from African slave traders and bring these African slaves to the New World, the Americas. This particular slave trade was, as all slave trading has been, very lucrative for some people and utterly horrific for others. The North Atlantic slave trade was particularly lucrative for Britain, partly because the British had developed such a vast fleet of merchant ships. Many British people supported the slave trade, while others opposed it. This was true of Christians in Britain and non-Christians. In the late 1700s, however, a young member of the British Parliament, William Wilberforce, had a profound conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. Prior to his conversion, Wilberforce's primary concern in life were his own success and his popular reputation. After his conversion, however, Wilberforce began to understand that he had been wrong. 
As a follower of Jesus, he began to understand that his primary purpose in life was to love God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love other people by working for their welfare. As Wilberforce grew in his faith, he became increasingly concerned about the North Atlantic slave trade, believing it to be evil in the eyes of God. He wondered whether or not he could or even should do something about it as a member of parliament and as a Christian. As he talked with different people, both Christian and non-Christian, some discouraged him from becoming involved, saying that a Christian had no business bringing religion into politics, and that to oppose the slave trade would hurt Britain economically. Other people encouraged him to get involved because slavery in their eyes was evil and because everything in life belonged ultimately, they believed, to God, even politics. One person who encouraged him to stay in Parliament and fight the slave trade was John Newton, who was a former captain of a slave ship. Newton had given his life to Jesus, quit the slave trade, and become a pastor whose churches started several orphanages in England. Newton was the guy who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And he said this to Wilberforce, God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. Continue in Parliament. Who knows but that for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose for you. On May 12, 1789, Wilberforce gave a three-hour speech in Parliament going into gruesome detail about the reality of the North Atlantic slave trade. And at the end of the speech, he said to his fellow members of parliament, having heard all of this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say you did not know. It took 20 years for Wilberforce and his allies to win their first victory against the North Atlantic slave trade. During that time, Wilberforce was viciously attacked in the newspapers. There was no internet or radio or television. He was physically assaulted. He faced death threats. He had to travel with an armed bodyguard. The fight took an incredible toll on his health. In 1796, when it seemed like the opponents of the slave trade were going to win, and they lost by only four votes. Wilberforce had an emotional breakdown and his physical health just collapsed. Again, it was John Newton who visited Wilberforce 
and quoted the story of Daniel in the lion's den to him. Newton told Wilberforce that Daniel was a public man with many enemies just as Wilberforce was. And Newton reminded Wilberforce that Daniel had trusted in the Lord in the midst of great difficulties and the Lord was faithful. Daniel's enemies could not prevail against him. Newton told Wilberforce this, the God whom you serve continually is able to preserve and deliver you. He will see you through. It was exactly what Wilberforce needed to hear. He and his allies continued the fight and eventually the slave trade, seeking to arrest slave traders from any nation. By the time of the 1700s, the time of Wilberforce, Britain and much of Europe was largely unchurched, even though they had a Christian history. Christian buildings were there and institutions existed, but they ceased to influence their population to any great degree. And ironically, on May 5, 1789, seven days before Wilberforce's famous three-hour speech, the French Revolution began. It would become profoundly anti-Christian and one of the bloodiest of the modern revolutions. Through the work of Wilberforce and others like him, like John and Charles Wesley, England was saved from a French-style revolution, even though people in England faced many of the same problems that people in France did. Wilberforce, the Wesleys, and many others like them gave their lives to bringing people back into Christianity. But these Christian leaders did not want people merely to attend church on Sunday. They wanted people to see that following Jesus, entering the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of God was something that was focused on changing the whole culture of British society into a nation where people could learn to love God with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love other people by working for their welfare. In this life, and for a time at least, the churches of England said, yes, we will love God and our neighbors. But that's a battle that every generation has to fight. So, okay, that had a positive ending. Let's consider a different nation and its churches. Following World War I, Germany was devastated. One of the most Christian nations that had ever existed. Germany had made tragic mistakes in World War I and unbelievably Millions of people were killed for nothing. Germany was humiliated, and in spite of the power of the German Lutheran Church, who traced its origin to Martin Luther, the Augustinian friar who started the Protestant Reformation in 1517, Germany began to be influenced very slowly at first 
by the German Workers' Party. in the early 1920s, which gradually became the Nazi party, led by Adolf Hitler. In general, at the beginning, the German Lutheran and other churches either supported or remained silent about political, social, and cultural developments in Germany during the 1920s and early 1930s. However, as Adolf Hitler's German Christian movement grew, certain Christian leaders in Germany and nearby countries began to speak out about the dangers that the growing power of the Nazi movement posed for Germany as a nation and for the German churches. In opposition to the German Christian movement of Hitler that supported the Nazi movement, the, con the Confessing Church movement was started in 1933, founded by Martin Niemöller and other Christian leaders. In May 1934, the Barman Declaration was written primarily by a famous theologian named Karl Barth. And in brief, this declaration states that the German state the Nazi party, or any other earthly power has no authority over the church of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor, was one of the primary voices speaking out against the Nazis and the churches that supported the Nazis and the, church, the, Christ, the German Christian pastors and churches who remained silent in the face of growing Nazi power. Bonhoeffer wrote the modern Christian classic, maybe, maybe some of you read it, The Cost of Discipleship. He pointed out that of the 18,000 Lutheran pastors in Germany in the 30s, 30,000 actually supported the Nazis. 30,000 opposed the Nazis, and 12,000 remained completely silent. Bonhoeffer was a very careful thinker who spent time in the US studying theology. He became disgusted with the great majority of German Lutheran leaders who either supported the Nazi evil or remained silent in the face of it. against the advice of his friends in America and Germany, Bonhoeffer became convinced that he had to return to Germany from America and join those fighting to oppose Hitler and the Nazis. He did return in 1939 and vocally denounced Hitler's euthanasia program and the Nazi genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was arrested by the Gestapo in April of 1943 and put in a prison for a year and a half. He was then transferred to a concentration camp and accused of being part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. He was quickly tried and found guilty. And he was hanged to death on April 9th, 
1945, just as the Nazi regime, regime was collapsing and World War II was coming to an end. He was 39 years old. His last words were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. So what about our country and its churches? Did you know that we recently had an election in the US? What do you think about it, if anything at all? You know, when I was young, I was not interested in politics. I never voted in an election. I didn't spend very much time thinking about political or social issues. I guess it never really occurred to me that regular people had anything to do with the way society is organized and whether or not society is righteous and just or not. It wasn't until much later in my life that I began to think that our creator has given us regular people the honor and the responsibility to create societies that are righteous and just. What about you? Do you think that followers of Jesus should be concerned about social, cultural, political issues, or not? Is being a follower of Jesus only a spiritual matter? About making sure that we and others get to heaven, not the other place? Or do you think that following Jesus has something to do with what happens in this world as well. Remember that at the beginning of this talk, I read you the quote from Jesus from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount about how his followers, ordinary people, are supposed to be the salt and light of this world. who, through their good deeds, cause others to bring glory to God. Now I'm going to read a, one of the parables Jesus told as he talked about the time between his death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of God in heaven, and his second coming at the end of this present evil age. This is from Matthew Chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. He said, again, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags of gold, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags gained two more. 
But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I gained two. His master replied, well done good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now notice how the first two servants are rewarded because they took what had been given to them by the master and they risked it for the master's business. In other words, the first two servants are like followers of Jesus who take whatever they're given by Jesus in this life and they take risks for Jesus' sake. They can do this because they know that Jesus loves them and they, in return, love him and they trust him. The third servant, however, sees the master, Jesus, as a hard man, harvesting where he is not sown and gathering where he is not scattered seed. The third servant, therefore, 
is afraid to take a risk with what Jesus has given him in this life for Jesus' sake. He can't risk anything for Jesus' sake because he doesn't believe Jesus loves him. And so he can't trust Jesus. Now, in this short talk today, I've raised a couple of issues with you. These are not easy matters. And they are issues that various Christians hold different views on. The first issue is, what does it mean for followers of Jesus to live as salt and light in the particular social, cultural, political, and religious context that God has placed you in. I hope that you will begin to, or perhaps continue to, think seriously about living as salt and light and doing good works so that others may glorify our Father in heaven. The second issue I've raised is the matter of whether or not we love and trust Jesus enough to take risks to serve his interests in this life. This is because if we believe that Jesus truly loves us, we're, gonna be, we're not going to be afraid to take risks for his sake even knowing that we're almost certainly going to make mistakes. Knowing that Jesus loves us enough to give his life for us enables us to take risks in serving him because we know that he sees our hearts and loves us, even when we get it wrong. Now, why have I brought up these issues and told these stories this morning? Well, it's because I believe that our country and our churches are living in the midst of a very dangerous social, cultural, political, and religious revolution. I believe that the meaning of basic words that are foundational to our faith in Jesus and foundational to the very existence of Western civilization are being changed right before our eyes. And we're being told that we must not say anything. We must go along with the revolution or remain silent. Because to say that the emperor has no clothes on and is in fact naked, ridiculous, losing friends or jobs or security or maybe even our freedom as citizens of the United States of America. I believe it's important that we do speak out. However, I also believe we must learn to speak the truth in love. We must educate ourselves about what's actually happening in our schools, in our hospitals, 
and in our legal systems, what's happening with our political system. I believe that we will not always agree with each other. But we must take the risk to try and understand what it means to be salt and light in our society. Janice and I lived in a country where that was not possible. Where people who were following Jesus were harassed daily by the police, put in prison, and even killed for their faith. I pray that it will not come to that point here. And so we're going to do something new here at OTC. Once a month on Sunday afternoon at the church office, we're going to take some time to educate ourselves about some particular social or cultural political issue. And we're going to learn to talk about it and tell the truth with love. Everyone who is interested is invited. The first meeting will be on the issue of transgenderism. We're going to watch an excellent documentary called What is a Woman? And then we'll have the chance to have lunch together and talk about it and pray together. I don't know what will come out of it. Future meetings can focus on any issue that you are concerned about. Uh, is Sierra here? No. Okay. So next week in the bulletin will be the date of the first meeting, which will be in December. And I'm not sure which Sunday, so. Um, let's pray. Lord, you lived at a very dangerous time in history, and most people do. In the United States, a lot of us have lived at a time where it's been pretty safe, but it's changing. I pray that you would guide us, that you would always remind us that you love us and that you have given us the great task of creating societies that are just and righteous. Lord, we will make mistakes, but we know that because you love us so much, you will extend grace. So, Lord, we love you, and we pray in your name. Amen.